We're going to spend some time in Habakkuk. Before I want to get in, get in this, I, I want to just I want to read uh, a passage at the end of this book. You don't need to turn there; just just listen. Is this just a profound statement? Listen to this: Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield. No food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What a beautiful statement. What a confident statement of faith. I don't know if there's any any more or more, more confident statement in Scripture of faith of someone just trusting the Lord. I mean, this guy just went through every way in which I can have provision for life is gone. Though I have no money in the bank, though I've lost my job, though my house burnt down, and all the homeless shelters are full, what a profound statement of faith. What a beautiful thing to actually be able to confidently say that. To stand in the middle of suffering and trouble and life going crazy. And I actually internally can say with confidence. Though all of this fail. I will hope in the God of my salvation. It's beautiful. We want to say that. But if we're honest, the reality is that is a difficult thing to say, depending on your situation. I mean, when I was young and naive, yeah, no matter what happens, Lord. But when trouble comes into life, I got a different perspective. See, I think for many of us, this is a difficult thing for us to say. Many of you may be going through one of those seasons where it feels like all of my stuff that I've worked for, everything that I've done is all gone. And I don't know what to do. Does God even care? Are you even there, Lord? Do you even know what's going on in my life? Do you hear? Do you see? Are you actually powerful? See, a lot of us can say, we, I can do this. This is, this, is my, this is my perspective. This is how I'm gonna live life. 
I'm trusting the Lord. I'm going to proclaim his goodness, his everything. I'm going to trust him no matter what comes. And then when life press ends, it's a completely different statement. Why? Because we're human. Because we don't always have it all together. Because we're not perfect. And God doesn't intend us to be. The beautiful thing that we find in the book of Habakkuk, which I'm going to say Habakkuk because I'm from the south and that's just how I'm going to say it. I'm not going to pronounce the Hebrew. Habakkuk. It's this beautiful book and picture of someone growing in maturity. From beginning in a place of just deep question. Where are you? Are you real? What's going on? To a slow progression of a man who is getting it and then finally gets it. In the Christian life, there's this concept or this, this idea that we are somehow just going to arrive based on a decision or a process that we walk through. And that's just not true. None of us fully arrive until we are met into the arms of the Savior at the end of our life. Like John, John Culpepper. He's arrived. But while we're here on this earth, we will struggle. We will wrestle when the things we read about God don't match with the life that we're living. When difficulties come in and, and things move us and shake us, and, and my hope for us in this book is that we would begin to understand how we can mature so that when those things come, they don't necessarily knock us off our feet. Right? Paul, writing to the Ephesians, uh, teaches them, he says, look, in Ephesians 4, I've, the Lord gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ, until we all obtain, receive, take hold of, Unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What does that mean? All of us start as children in the faith. All of us begin in a place where we are moved to and fro by the wind of doctrine, by things that happen in life. And God wants us to be mature, wants us to stand steadfast and be like Habakkuk in truth and reality in my soul, able to say with honesty, this stuff's happening, but I will trust you. This stuff is going on but I'm not leaving you. And that is a journey 
that we all take. And we're going to watch a man who's unique among the prophets because it's, it's a man that we get to see this change happen. We get to see this movement happen. So who was Habakkuk? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Who was this man? Well, we're not entirely sure. Uh, Rabbinical tradition puts him in the tribe of Levi, a priest. But he most likely lived somewhere in between this time frame. This prophecy came somewhere between here, right? We, We read Nineveh. That was about the destruction of Uh, not Nineveh, Nahum, about the destruction of Nineveh, which happened around 612. Nahum preached that around 650. This book comes in somewhere between the fall of Nineveh and the battle of Carchemish, which I know you guys all know exactly what that is, right? You guys know where Carchemish is, right? That's where you put two cars together, right? Carchemish. Uh, no, okay. Dad jokes are not good. Um, so this is, this is the time frame where Babylon is rising to the world power stage. They come and they did what the Lord said that he would do through Nahum to Assyria, and they take out Nineveh. And after they take out Nineveh, they go on a rampage to, that we just killed the world power, now it's our turn. But we need to squash all opposition. So they move through. They pass through Israel. They go down to Egypt, where Carchemish is. And they finish the job. And somewhere in between there, Nahum's preaching. He's from Judah. He's he's talking to Judah. And he's talking to them during a time of two kings. Two wicked kings, two of the last kings in Judah, who made a mess. Right, right before this, there's this awesome king, his name's Josiah. You guys remember Josiah? Eight years old when he ran, when he when he became king. And he's got some Levites, some priests, who are cleaning out the temple. Right? It's so dirty, it hasn't been used. Right? They're, cleaning out, they're cleaning out the storehouses. And they stumble upon the Torah, the law of Moses. This is weird. What is this thing? And they start reading it. Oh, We've got to give this to the king. They read it to the king. And he's like, what have we been doing? Right? Manasseh set up all these altars and all these these different places of worship. We're worshiping all these different idols and all this. We've, we've left what God has told us to do and we're suffering what God has said we would suffer because we've left what he's called us to follow. That's done. We're reforming this place. Knock it all down. Burn all the idols. We're coming back. We're reading the word to the people. We're, we're going to have Passover again for the first time since I, don't, I can't even remember what it was. And he slaughters like thousands upon, of animals. They give tons of money. They're, this huge revival. People are changing. And it's like, man, finally, God's at work. God's finally doing something in his people. 
And then right after Josiah, there's a king that arises. It's almost worse than Manasseh, and he changes everything back. And the people follow. And then another king. And then that's it. Nebuchadnezzar comes, conquers. And it's in this time Habakkuk is writing and he's, and he's calling out to the Lord. He's wrestling with the problem of evil, of wickedness, of why I'm seeing things happening in and around me and it doesn't seem like God's actually, that he actually cares. That he's actually working. I love Habakkuk because he's a prophet that carries the message of the people to God. I love him because he's, I I almost call him like the mini Job. This prophet who just, he's wrestling, he doesn't understand. And then God slowly helps him to see. So, With all that, we're going to get into the first four verses here. I'm going to read it. I've got a couple of of observations and a question for you. But if you have your book open, your Bible open, chapter 1 of Habakkuk says this. The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet Saul. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So the first point I want to bring up here is that life does not always appear as though God is actively at work. Life does not always appear as though God is actively at work. How long, O Lord, shall I cry to help? You will not hear. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? The law is paralyzed. What good is it? There's no power here. What is Hezekiah saying? He's not even talking about the nations around him. He's looking at his own nation, Judah. This is a Levite. This is a priest. This is someone who's, who knows God's word. Maybe he lived through Josiah's reign. Maybe he was a child when Josiah brought everyone back and had Passover again. Maybe he saw the reforms and then he saw the corruption. Lord, 
You said in your word that if I trust you, if I follow you, I know your promises. You're going to make things right. And for us remnant who are trusting you and following you, we are the ones being abused. We are the ones being cast out. We've no power. And the people, look at them, they're just going crazy. We read your word. We preached it. We proclaimed it. And it's done nothing to the world around us. How long, O oh Lord? These wicked lifestyles are praised. The righteous ones are persecuted. What is going on? Right? Like Habakkuk's like someone, let's just imagine for a second, you, you were raised in this church. This church is 40 years old or so, right? So you're raised in this church. You have fond memories. You remember children's directors who did crazy things like order horses to come to an a Easter event? You remember the community and the love? And you went off to college, and you weren't able to find it anywhere. And you're like, you know, you live in, and it's like, man, I, I don't care what I do for a job. I know that what's more valuable to me is to find a community of people who love Jesus and be with them. So you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm selling everything. I'm moving back to Delaware. And I have to sell everything to afford to come live in Delaware now. And I'm coming to this church. And you walk in the door on a Sunday morning and you're like, What's that smell? And you see like a group of people over here burning incense. Their heads all shaved and they're wearing orange. And they're they're praying to Buddha. And you're like, "What what's going on over here?" Then you see some more incense over at this place and they're all praying to some god. They don't even know who it is. Then you then you got some people over here with beards and glasses, smoking cigars and talking about how there's no God. And, and you walk in and you go, what happened, guys? Why are we not worshiping Jesus here? And they all turn around and they start harassing you and running you out. Don't you bring that God nonsense here. Don't you judge me. And they run you out of the building. What'd your reaction be? What happened, Lord? What happened in your church? How long are you going to let this go on? What happened for your people? They missed it. Like, I, I don't think I need to belabor this, but the reality is this is our situation. Often. There are things that were that no longer are. There's confusion in and around us, in our families, 
in our cities, in our nation. People who stand for things that are right are the ones who are abused. And the people who champion things that are wrong are the ones that are praised. How long, oh Lord? See, the problem is, is that sometimes life does not appear as though God is actively at work. And the question is, what do we do when that happens? And the answer is found in God's desire is that we would bring our deep questions to him. God desires that we do not hide the wrestling in our heart when we see things that are incongruent with the way he's described his word or what's going on in life. God wants us to communicate the deep hurt in our life. Harrison just gave us an awesome illustration of how, how awesome God is. He is. And he's so big that he can handle your doubts. He can handle your questions. In fact, over 40 times in 15 verses in the Psalms alone, this same question comes up. God's prophets all throughout history question him. You said this, I see this, these things don't match up, what's going on? Just to give you kind of a, a brief overview, right? Psalm 13:1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long shall I sit in this depression, in this anguish, in the person who is wrong and clearly wrong and fighting against you is winning? How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? O oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? How long will you judge? Listen, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Man, what a bold statement. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Let me say it twice. How long, how long? How long must your servant endure when you judge those, when will you judge those who persecute me? Right, most of these psalms are written by David a man who's 
who's got a description. He's a man after who, what? God's own heart. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a doubter. He's a questioner. He's a man after God's own heart. Why? Because did God desires that his people bring their questions to him. And I think a lot of people grow up in a Christian world, uh, worldview, mind frame, with a false understanding of what God desires for us. We can hear God's great, he's powerful, he's big, he's not to be questioned. And if you're going to do right, if you're going to be approved by him, then you'll just silently take whatever he gives and trust him. When the reality is that God wants a relationship with you. God wants to help you work through the questions that you have in your heart and grow you into maturity before him. And we can't grow into maturity when we're denying the real deep doubting that we have. This is almost why this, there's this big trend of leaving the faith. Deconstructionism. I'm deconstructing a Christian. Why? Because I never actually wrestled with real things. I just said all the talk. I played the game. I, I, I put on the performance. I did all the stuff. And I found it's just lacking. Because I can't actually deal with the pain and the difficulty that's in my soul right now. And if I can't wrestle with that and work through that, then this can't be real. And God, through David, through the prophet Habakkuk, gives us insight and freedom to say to him, how long, O oh Lord? How long? Why? What is going on? God desires that we bring our deep questions before him. Why? Because when we do, we reveal that we take him seriously. professor at the very end of my seminary career, last class I ever took, long-term professor, brilliant man. This dude was so brilliant that he just was curious about brain science, so he decided to go get a PhD about it. After he already had a PhD, let's go get another one. He was elected to be chair of the Department of Theology as at, in, in his like late 20s, in the 80s, or I don't know when, how old he was. But right when he did that, his son was born with a congenital birth defect that made him stay in the ICU, NICU, for three months. And this is right after he became chair of the Department of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. 
number one seminary in the world. Prestigious. God, you gave me that assignment. I trust you. And now my son is potentially dying. And it was in that time that that professor learned something about God and about himself and became one of the catalysts for the most spiritual growth that he's ever had in his life. It was because he spent three months screaming at God about what was going on. And God coming in and gently working out what's happening in his heart. And when I heard that, that was extremely helpful for me because one of our children, shortly after they were born, under a routine procedure, almost lost their life. And we're in seminary, we got a full-time job, full-time school, and, and all this stuff going on, and it's, what is going on? And for me, that was hopeful. For me, that helped me to work through the doubts that I had. To become strong, to work it out. This is the basis of relationship. You can't actually have a deep relationship until you are honest with each other. Many of you who are married know this. Maybe it's taken 15 to 20 years to get there. But you know that the things that you're both holding against one another and the frustration that you have that you're just kind of smiling and letting go end up becoming bigger problems and driving a wedge. But when you become brutally honest with one another and you find love and acceptance and understanding, you grow. And when you're brutally honest with the Lord, he begins to work in you to understand what's happening. It's okay to be honest with him. It's okay to bear the reality of the struggles that you have. It's okay not to have it all together. So, question I have for you is, am I honest with God? Am I honest with him? Do I bring my doubts to him? Do I run to him with my questions? I'm not advocating that we become a bunch of complainers. That's one thing. My attitude is just, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. It's different than me wrestling with the deep core, deep-seated issues and questions about life. These don't make sense. We've been doing everything right. Everything we knew you called us to do and our kids are not following you. I've been walking with you. I've been reading my Bible every day. I, I've, been, I've been doing what I can. It just seems like things are getting worse. How long? 
But the only real way we can bring change in our lives is to be honest with where we currently are. There's a reason why AA and NA, or really NEA, uses the 12-step program, which starts with admitting that I'm powerless to change myself. Because you've got to start somewhere. And when I start there, then I can start growing. Right? Like, it's like if I invited someone over to my house and their GPS broke and they didn't have a map, but their phone worked. They called me. Like, Andrew, I'm lost. Okay, sweet. Let, let me help you. Where are you at? Well, I mean, there's some trees and a stoplight. That's great. I, I love that. Um, is, there any, is there any road signs on this? Well, I mean, there's a rock, a big rock, and there's a, there's, there is a road. It's got some, some, uh, some asphalt on it. Dude, that's awesome. Um, uh, can you give me any, any more? Are you in the state? Are you in Delaware? Are you in Maryland? Are you, where, where are you? I, yeah, I mean, it's just like, the, it's not raining here. Okay. <laughs> Dude, I can't help you until I know where you are to begin to navigate to where you need to be. Right? And I think that we fail to see that we think that we need to pretend that we are somewhere when we're not there. And if we pretend that we are somewhere when we're not there, then we're never going to grow to where God wants us to be. So all that to say is God is big enough to handle your questions. He is big enough to handle your doubts. You don't need to prove anything to him. In fact, in Psalm 139, he says, he discerns my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, he knows it altogether. He already knows what you're wrestling with. Hiding it does no good. Being open and honest with God in our relationship and then with trusted people around us, man, that can change things. Right? Faith is not blind assurance when all the world is going right as it should. Faith is a life raft in the sea of doubt that I cling on to until the Lord brings it, turns it into a boat or an island for me to set, stand on firm. When chaotic seas are around me. Faith is something that the Lord births and grows in me. So whether I have a little or a lot, it's his work. It's big enough. He's good enough. He can take it. In fact, he already took it all. We're about to celebrate a meal that helps us to remember what he's already done on our behalf. Christ, the Holy One, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
came to an earth that he created to a people that he made and took upon their brokenness, their sin, their bad thoughts, their questions, and died for them. He loves you. And with that, why don't we just transition into communion? I think it's a good time to transition. Anyone's been uh, asked to help serve? I want to ask you to just go ahead and come forward. Worship team's going to come up, and I'm going to pray. Lord, we